Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The relationship uh, through all of my career as a journalist caring about the Middle East, the U.S.-Iran collision has been a central fact of life. It's been the destabilizing element uh, in the Middle East. We have not, over that time, found an effective way really to deal with that regime. We've tried different ways. We've tried being tough. The most extreme action we've taken probably was the targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani. My reaction when I, when I heard was first that we had crossed a line Immediate repercussions have been less than expected, and that's that's good for us. But this might not be over yet, right? In the Middle East, nothing's ever over. (laughs) Nothing is ever. Political bedrock in Saudi Arabia is getting more and more authoritarian. There's no sign that I see that MBS realizes that he's building a police state. And once you build one, then you need even more police to to enforce it. And that, I think, is a a tragedy. I I think Saudi Arabia that changes, that moves into the future, we should all endorse that. And, And that part of what's going on, we should say, that's great. But the worry is, unless he broadens his base, unless he governs by something other than raw fear among people, it's gonna, it's not going to work. How do you think the IC is holding up in the current political environment? I, I do worry that getting battered now, it's been three years, right. a, a pretty much ceaseless assault on these agencies is going to take its toll, not least in people being afraid to be visible um, and accountable in the way that they need to be. David Ignatius writes an award-winning column on foreign affairs for the Washington Post. David has been with the Post for over 30 years, and he has been writing his column for over 20. David has also written 10 spy novels, with his 11th, The Paladin, coming out in May. I just had the opportunity to sit down with David and talk about a wide range of issues. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. (laughs) 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. David, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show, and more importantly, it's great to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, David, I want to start a little bit with your background. How did you get interested in journalism? How did you end up as a journalist? Journalism was really the only thing I was ever, to be honest, any good at. I wrote for my high school newspaper. I got good grades, but um, that was the thing that that I enjoy. That I felt I had a natural aptitude for. Uh, I used to, you know, go uh, to the Howard Theater here in Washington and interview the Temptations from my high school newspaper. Wow, uh, Junior Walker and the All Stars. That was the lengths to which I would try to. Most, play my journalistic card back then. Yeah, most student reporters don't get those kind of opportunities. <laughs> well, it was uh, I would go there in my white shirt and tie and my school blazer, and I think people kind of roll their eyes. What was this kid doing? I remember going to the, t- the basement of the Temptations hotel room, and he opened the door, and you could imagine the smells that wafted out of, of dope and the people who were dancing, and he said, yeah. I think it's time for this interview to be over. <laughs> So what would you what would you tell a group of young people today who might be interested in journalism about the profession? You need to really love it because uh, it's difficult. It's difficult um, in the sense that it's not very well paid. The number of places that you can do good journalism, alas, seems to be shrinking, certainly in print. Uh, it's great to be doing podcasts, and that opens up new ways for people to, to do journalism. But you have to love it. You have to be prepared for a profession that doesn't always love you back. You have to be uh, tough-minded. Uh, that's what journalists need to do. They need to ask hard questions and take take their criticism. And I think finally you need to, to have good judgment. Uh, we see lots of things in the world that are news, but we need good judgment in making sense of them, uh, not going crazy, not being hysterical, not looking to our, our readers and viewers as if, as if we're biased, as if we're starting off knowing what the right answers are. What would you say the fundamental mission is of a journalist? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Um, provide accountability for powerful people. Help readers to make sense of a world that's increasingly difficult to make sense of. Uh, you know, I'd add just for these times, to the extent possible, avoid being infected by the craziness that's all around us. Keep your balance. Um, don't be predictable. Don't be on one team or another in the partisan debates that divide us. I think journalists need to be, we have our own team. It's called journalism. Do you, do you find it difficult to stay in that sweet spot in, in these times that we live so, in? So, Michael, I, I think one of the things that worries me most is that uh, people vote with their uh, clicks or, or where they uh, decide to tune in for the kind of news that they want. And increasingly, it seems as if they, they want news that confirms their biases, news that challenges their biases, news that is unpredictable, that just c- comes at the story, try to make sense of it, seems to be failing out to, to news that 
uh, makes you feel good about it. it. Tells you the people you hate are really awful. Yeah. The people you love are great, and and so people are choosing up which news team they want to be on. I think that's just poisonous for us. I think it's poisonous for the country too. But uh, I think that's that's one of the dilemmas. The people who are hiring seem to be getting the clicks. Sometimes are are more tendentious. So, David, I consider you to be an expert in the Middle East. I think you're one of the leading, if not the leading columnists on the Middle East in the United States today. How did you get interested in the Middle East? It was was really uh, almost a process of accident initially. Uh, I had been working for the Wall Street Journal in Pittsburgh. I was hired by the journal, bizarre as this may sound, to cover the biggest uh, labor union in America, the steelworkers. Mm -hmm. So I went went to Pittsburgh and wrote about the union and then about the steel industry. I was uh, promoted then to Washington and covered the Justice Department, began covering the CIA. Uh, And in 1980, uh, the job of Middle East correspondent for the Wall Street Journal came open. And I was asked by the foreign editor and the managing editor if I would have any interest. And I said, you know, I've never been there. I don't speak any of the languages. I don't know much about it. And they said, you're perfect. That's, (laughs) in other words, they wanted somebody who would come at this who was fresh. I was then... 29, 30, uh, really still just starting out my career. So I spent the next three years covering the Middle East, spent most of that time in Beirut. And it was a real education for me. Um, Obviously, covering conflict, the Lebanese Civil War was going on, then the Israeli invasion of Lebanon, uh, the aftermath of the U.S. Marines, the bombing of our embassy, the bombing of our our Marine barracks. Um, Just taught me a lot about about that part of the world. Also, to be honest, it it just got under my skin. I became fascinated by it, especially fascinated by by Lebanon. Uh, and uh, I, I, over these many years, uh, I just haven't been able to, to detach myself. I began writing novels that were set in the Middle East. That added a new dimension for me. Uh, as you know, because you've been interested in it also, it's, it's a heartbreaking part of the world. It's a place, as a colleague told me many years ago, where pessimism pays. You know, if you, if you bet that things aren't going to work out, you're usually right. Mm. But, uh, you know, all these years later, 40 years later, it still fascinates me. Um, an affection? Would you say you have affection for the region? I do have. I have a, I have a yeah, deep so do affection. I. Yeah, so do I. I mean, I, I think uh, the Middle East is a place where you make friends, and if you work at it, you keep them. Uh, I still see some of the people I met uh, in 1980, through the years, um, and you, know, you grieve with them for, for the for the terrible burden of suffering that they that they bear. It's it's a part of our problem, I think, as Americans, is it engages uh, our our interests, but also our idealism. We we really want to help people in the Middle East, and we seem often in that process to make things worse. I'm sorry to say. So, David, take a, I'm going to break this into kind of two pieces. You're writing as a columnist, and then you're, you're writing as a novelist. You have a twice-a-week column in the Post on foreign affairs. And I think you're unique in that your column both is news, you often break news, and then your column is also has an editorial aspect of it, which are your views. Do you see yourself as unique in this space? Well, I think there are other c- columnists who, who tr- try to uh, offer news, not just opinions, uh, I'm surprised there aren't more. When I was starting out in journalism, uh, growing up, 
the typical Washington column, especially on foreign affairs, tried to break news in every column. They competed. Uh, Joe Alsup, Joe Kraft, uh, Evans and Novak. These are names people mm-hmm. have probably forgotten these days, but their columns were, f- were full of news. And uh, I've always uh, thought that's the most fun part of my job. Um, I'm surprised there aren't more people competing in that space. I think it'd be good for me and be good for, for journalism. But I, I, I probably have a fundamental defect as an opinion columnist, which is I'm not that interested in opinions, including my own. I'm interested in, in new information. If I were just write a column that's just kind of, you know, buzzing around the same uh, hive that everybody else is, it just bores me. I don't. Mm. I don't. Mm. So I, I, I always want to look for something that's new, tell you something you don't know, um, and that that's what keeps me going. Uh, otherwise, I'd, I'd find another job. I'd be bored. Do you have a, a process that you go through to identify what you want to write about, or do the ideas just come to you? Well, sometimes I'll come into the office on a day that I have a column due and I won't really be sure what I'm going to write about. Sometimes those are the best. You just, you know, let something pre-conscious take over. You're under severe deadline pressure and it just happens. And and you speak with a voice that, that comes from you know, deep thoughts you have that you weren't maybe consciously aware of. Those, those, those can be fun. There's columns I spend weeks and weeks working on, you know, or some months where I will be working a subject, working sources, gathering string. These days I can write longer columns. I can let them run to 3,000 words or more online, and then I'll cut them down to a tight 750-word uh, version for the newspaper. But but that's great. I, you know, I, There's a part of me, I got started doing investigative reporting. I've never lost that interest, and uh, thanks to the infinite space of the Internet, I get to get to go back to writing longer form. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about the Middle East in particular, and my sense is that, just looking at my questions here, that you've written about all of these in the last few weeks. I'd love to get your thinking for our listeners on the U.S.-Iran relationship in general and the strike that killed General Soleimani in particular. The relationship uh, through all of my career as a journalist caring about the Middle East, um, the U.S.-Iran collision has been a central fact of life. It's been the destabilizing element uh, in the Middle East. Um, The the rage of the Iranian Revolution of 1979 continues to destabilize the Middle East. Um, And we have not, over that time, found an effective way, really, I think, to, to, to deal with that regime. We've tried different ways. We've tried being tough, um, virtually going to war during the Iraq-Iran war on the side of Iraq. We've tried being generous in the negotiations that President Obama conducted for the nuclear agreement, and, and nothing's quite seemed to work. Um, the, the most extreme action we've taken, probably, was the targeted killing of Qasem Soleimani, Iran's leading military strategist and, and covert action intelligence officer, and we killed him. And we tried to kill his key deputy uh, the same day, um, an unusual step. Um, so far, it hasn't had the repercussions. What that was your many... reaction when you heard? My reaction when I, when I heard was um, first that we had crossed a line, the killing of a senior military commander at a civilian airport in a, in a drone strike 
takes warfare into a different place. And I, I worried and worried to this day that anybody who thinks that this will be a unique example of countries using drones to kill generals of, of countries they don't like is, is wrong. We, we open the door into a space that others are sure to, to follow. We won't like the results of that. That's one of the reasons that people exercise caution. On the question of, of whether it would, it would be radically destabilizing, I, I think I shared the fears of many people that Iran, Iran would retaliate in ways that would make our problems worse. So far that hasn't happened. So you have to say, um, you know, we took no question that he was a killer, mm -hmm. that he was a person who had brought you know, much destruction to the region and to Americans. Uh, you know, it's good that he's off the battlefield. Um, will it end up being a net positive or negative from the standpoint of U.S. interests? It's one of those questions. It's, it's too early to say, but you'd, you'd have to you'd have to say we are in a new era. Other people will try the same thing. That should worry us. Immediate repercussions have been less than expected, and that's that's good for us. But this might not be over yet, right? This is in the Middle East. I mean, <laughs> nothing's ever over. No, it, nothing is ever over. So, David, similar kind of question on President Trump's proposal for peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Well, I, I saw the the peace proposal, so called, uh, as essentially an invitation to the Palestinians to. Uh, accept, uh, ratify their defeat in this long struggle uh, against Israel. It dates back really to the foundation of, of Israel in 1948. And over time, the Palestinians have been defeated not simply on the battlefield, but uh, through, I think, extraordinary mistakes on their part, have failed at the dip diplomatic table. So they've turned down many peace offers, offers far better than this one. I mean, this is really is uh, uh, it's a rejection of every fundamental demand that they've that they've had. The bet that uh, President Trump and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, senior counselor who's crafted this over three years, uh, are making is that the, the the pressure from other Arab countries that want to get on with it and normalize relations with Israel will be so strong that in the end, the Palestinians, if Trump is reelected, because this is a second-term strategy. The Palestinians will have no no choice but to but to go along with it. I think that's the idea that that uh, Kushner and company have in mind. Is that realistic? Um, all wars end eventually, but I don't see any signs that this one is ready to yet. I think the depth of Palestinian rage, the idea that the people who prize dignity as much as the Palestinians do, will accept the public shame of essentially granting Israeli annexation of what they think of as, as their land. I don't, I don't think we're there yet. There's this view out there, right, that if just President Abbas um, were to move on and the Palestinians had new leadership, that we might be in a different place. Do you share that view? Do you think the dynamics that you're talking about run much deeper among the Palestinian elite and the Palestinian I think Abbas people? is, is uh, exhausted as a leader, um, I think he has so much invested in saying no that the idea of him being a creative partner really is is gone. Uh, I, I think um, the if if the Palestinians had had better leadership, the possibility that they would then generate trust among Israelis and there'd be an ability to move toward 
um, some uh, better negotiation that would be more f- favorable to the Palestinians, I think is possible. Um, uh, right now, Israelis say, even, even Israelis who really want a, a two-state solution say, the other side just isn't, isn't trustworthy, isn't a partner. And uh, looking at, at Mahmoud Abbas, it's hard to argue with that. So, you know, as with a, a, any country, including ours, the, the biggest question is, is what political leadership will be there and will it be able to, to creatively change what seem to be the fundamentals. And uh, I hope the Palestinians have good leaders going forward. They need them. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with David Ignatius. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. David, one of the things that you and I have, have talked about quite frequently is... Um, Saudi Arabia and Mohammed bin Salman and where he is taking that country. Your your thoughts on that? Well, this is a hard question for me to answer because Mohammed bin Salman, I believe, is responsible for the murder of my colleague and friend. All of your listeners know that Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi columnist, a c- contributor to my newspaper, The Washington Post, was murdered in October um, 2018, and I have tried to continue in my journalism ever since then, it's now more than a year, uh, to, to try to understand how that happened. And I, I, I continue to believe that um, MBS, as, as the Saudi crown prince is known, and, and his, one of his top aides, Saud al-Qahtani, were involved in the approval of the operation that led to Khashoggi's death. So that has to be my starting point when I, when I talk about Saudi Arabia. Uh, I, I do think that uh, Mohammed bin Salman is appealing to a younger generation of Saudis in the way that a modernizing autocrat uh, does in the Middle East. I watched this uh, for a period with Saddam Hussein, who you know, mm. was the great modernizer of Iraq. Uh, I watched this uh, in various times in, in Egypt where you had modernizing dictators. Syria. Uh, Syria yes. So, yeah. so, so this is something that, that, we, that we know, and I think Saudi, Saudi people are as hungry for change as people anywhere. Uh, I think Saudi young people like the new culture that's more open, where the religious police are not stalking the markets, where you can go to public entertainment. They, you know, they have country music shows and, you know... Uh, uh, UFC cage fighting and you know, all things people around the world right. seem to love. Right. You can now get in Saudi Arabia. I was in Saudi Arabia in, in July of this year and went for a walk in Jeddah in the old city. And I was just amazed to see families out, women in various stages of veil, unveiled, quasi-veiled. It was, it's a different Saudi Arabia than I've ever seen. So I, I, I have to say those changes are good. The problem is that the, the, the political bedrock in Saudi Arabia, 
is getting more and more authoritarian. There's no sign that I see that MBS realizes that he's building a police state. And once you build one, then you need even more police to, to enforce it. And that, and that I think, is a, is a tragedy. I, I think, you know, Saudi Arabia that changes, that moves into the future, we should all endorse that. And, and that part of what's going on, we should say, that's great. But, but the worry is, unless he broadens his base, unless he governs by something other than raw fear, among, among people, it's gonna, it's not gonna work. I'm sure you saw the piece that Martin Indyk from the Brookings Institution wrote in the Wall Street Journal, and in that he argued that U.S. interests in the region have declined significantly over the last several years, and therefore what we're willing to invest in the region should decline as well. I just wanted to get your reaction to that. Well, I thought it was a brilliant piece. Um, Martin Indyk is the rare person who's really devoted much of his adult life to trying to bring peace and progress to the Middle East. Uh, uh, the National Security Council staff, the State Department, as ambassador to Israel. Uh, he has really been laboring in the vineyard to try to do good things. So when he reached this point of basically saying, enough, you know, this isn't worth the trouble, the anguish that we that we experience, I I took it very seriously. I think I think many thousands of people that you you and I you know talk to or write to think with uh, had the same experience. If Martin says that, we need to take it seriously. I, I think I would stop short of where Martin ended up. I think we have more strategic interests in the continuity of American power in that region than Martin suggested. I think we've seen the what happens when we kind of walk away and say, enough, I've had it. Um, others who were very mischievous take advantage of that. And although we don't need Middle East oil the way we used to, uh, the, the idea of ceding that part of the world and others to kind of permanent hegemony by others and the instability that will go along with that, I, I just don't see that in America's interest. So it's a, it was a great piece in that it made us all think Anybody who hasn't read it should go out and get a copy, and then and then think. Well, what do you, is is Martin right? Is it time for us to bail out of this region, or if not, what are the limits we're going to draw? It's a great thing to have a debate about, right? Yes, absolutely. Because we need to have a debate about absolutely. this because we are slowly pulling pulling in that direction. And the know. country is just fed up, and I'm struck by the in both parties. Obviously, Trump, you know, says he wants out. It's it's tougher. Thank goodness to do than he'd like because he, uh, he, he would have created vacuums in Afghanistan and Syria by now if he'd, if he'd, been, if he'd had his way. I ask David one more question about substance before we switch to talking about your books, which are absolutely fantastic. I presume you still talk to folks in the IC. You and I talked frequently. I actually learned a lot from those conversations in my office. I doubt that. Um, no, I absolutely did. How do you think the IC is holding up in the current political environment? Well, uh, the basic answer is, is I, I don't know because, uh, you know, the, their performance, like everything they do, is, is secret. I'm told by people from other countries who deal with them uh, in liaison relationships that they're basically as, as good as ever, that the operations um, uh, officers, their sense of mission... Uh, all the def different technical collection that we do uh, through other agencies is is still robust and confidently managed. There's no way for me to judge, but I, I take that as a good thing. We need a 
strong, self-confident intelligence agency. I, I do worry that getting battered now, it's been three years, right. uh, a pretty much ceaseless assault uh, on, on these agencies is going to take its toll, not least in people being afraid to be visible um, and accountable in a way that they need to be. I think I'll give you an example. Um, the CIA and the uh, Director of National Intelligence have essentially asked the Congressional Intelligence Committees for permission not to testify in public about their annual threat assessment. This is one of the big events, as, as you know, Mike, you had to prepare this, this many times. It's one of those moments where the intelligence agencies really level with the country about what's going on. And sometimes what they say is at odds with what policymakers say, and that's why it's so important. Last year, uh, the testimony by, by Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, made President Trump angry because it contradicted him on North Korea and a couple of other instances. So this year, they don't want to be in that situation. And I get it. You know, they, they, they want to be careful. They want to avoid offending the man in the Oval Office. But uh, that situation, I think, should really worry people. It's good for them to have to stand up and, and, and speak the truth to power, not be afraid of what the power will say. That, that's really the heart of, of their mission. And so here's one small example of the toll that we're beginning to pay. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. It's a, there, are, there are great benefits for the country and for the intelligence community in that annual event happening. And um, I worry greatly that, that it might not for all the reasons that you said. So David, you're also a fiction writer and a very good one. You've written 10 books. The 11th is on its way. I must tell you that I get asked frequently by young people who are interested in CIA, particularly the operational CIA, about what book should they read? What book comes closest to what, what it's really like. And without hesitation, I tell them Agents of Innocence, which was your first was, book. I'm flattered. Thank you. It's an amazing book. A couple of questions. How do you find the time to be a novelist and also to be a journalist at the same time? Well, obviously, uh, the wonderful thing about, about writing novels is it gives me a chance to take things that interest me in the world of fact the, as I report my columns, as I travel around the world, and then ex explore them on a much broader uh, tableau uh, in, in fiction. So, in a sense, the two worlds interpenetrate. I try to avoid either contaminating the other and, and I always want to say, you know, this is this is for fiction. It is it's made up, um, and I, I hope my columns are fact fact only. Um, but uh, the two, ever since my first novel was published in 1987, uh, back then I, I said to myself, um, okay, that that novel was well received, and people said you ought to be a novelist. And I remember thinking, um, I have to make a choice. You know, I, I'm going to have to decide. I'm going to do this, be a novelist, or do this, be a journalist. But I can't. And I didn't. I just didn't make the choice. I never could figure out what the right way to go was. I, I thought the kind of novels I wanted to write would never have a big enough readership that I could really make a living and send my kids to school and do all the things that we want to do. So I, I wanted to keep my day job, um, in part for financial reasons. But it's one of those moments. You know, sometimes the best choice to make is, is 
not to choose. And that's, that's why I did, continue to do both. Um, and do you I, do both at the same time, or do you take a break to write a novel? So when a, a novel is, it's like a physical thing that it's growing in your imagination. Um, you know, you're building a world, characters, a whole, a whole world uh, that, that begins to become real, and it just takes up more space. So when I'm beginning work on a book, I'll work on it two days a week, maybe three. You know, by the end, when the, it's just... I, I fall asleep thinking about it. I dream about it. I wake up thinking about it. I don't have a set time from six to nine. It's just every minute I can I can grab in my seven day week. Um, that that novel wants to take it. It's like a hungry baby. It just wants all the all the intellectual nourishment. So um, it's always a rush. Part of part of what's fun about this is when the when the book just is. It just takes takes its it, it's it's living you uh, as opposed to you living or writing it. Do you have the whole the, the whole um, arc of the story laid out in your mind, or does that evolve as you? I usually start with an idea of uh, yes, where I want the the story to end up. Um, that changes as you get to know the characters better, as you understand better the the world they're living in and the dilemmas. Um, some of the particular uh, twists and turns uh, change, but I, I I think it's important to start with. Um, the, some, some basic tracks laid down, and then and then let yourself, you know, switch and, and imagine and reimagine. Do you have a favorite of my books? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's like asking which child is your favorite. You you, you love them all. Um, the the first novel that you mentioned, Agents of Innocence, uh, it was it was based on on real life. It, it was based on a story. I used to say it was all made up, but it wasn't. It was based on uh, real events. At one of the most amazing intelligence operations the United States ever ran, where we recruited and ran as an asset uh, the chief of intelligence of our leading terrorist adversary at the time, the Palestine Liberation Organization. He, he was for 10 years operating as, as our, our guy in the PLO. And the, the people who did that, the way it was done, uh, just, you know, over, over, overwhelmingly interesting to me. I, I wanted to find a way to tell the story and fiction was 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 the only way so that 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 book where i kind of taught myself how to write it out the first the first draft of that was rejected by every publisher in america with really? you know, often you know derisively you know wow, wow mr dacious how interesting that you would think you could write a novel you know see you later uh but finally somebody took a risk and then i rewrote it a couple times um but it, it's just you know it was I think writing fiction is an iterative skill. You, you learn to do it by doing it. And, uh, you know, as I said, just glad I had the chance and then that I, that I let myself keep doing it. Um, and, you know, I've, parts of all my books, I, I, you know, I, 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 the, the new one, The Paladin, there are parts of it I just, I, I love, um, you know, but I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I don't. My, my first, firstborn novel isn't my favorite. So The Paladin, what's it about? Paladin is about a CIA officer. He's on the kind of blue-collar side of the agency. He's a, he's a, a technical officer, a guy who you know plants bugs, uh, hacks systems, uh, whose life is destroyed. His his career at the agency is wrecked. His marriage is shattered. He loses his family. He loses everything uh, because, as we discover through the the novel he's been assigned to conduct an operation which it's decided is illegal uh, he is asked to 
uh, invade the computers and space of an American journalist, in quotation marks, overseas. And uh, he is abandoned by the people he thought had promised him that he'd be safe doing this. But as the novel progresses, we learn that he, in some ways, is the architect of his own uh, difficulties, that the rage that he begins the book with, that others, is in part directed toward himself. He, he, this character, his name is Michael Dunn, was interesting to me because if listeners have, have read uh, the book Hillbilly Elegy, mm. about an angry person from the industrial heartland, uh, this book's character, Michael Dunn, is, is very much that kind of person. He's from McKeesport, Pennsylvania, an old steel town I mentioned earlier in our broadcast that I started my career covering the steel industry. So it's part of America that I know pretty well. And I and the angry people there, like Michael Dunn, my character, those are the people who elected Donald Trump. So there's a way in which this is a kind of allegory about what we're living through. I won't tell you where Michael Dunn ends up, but you can you won't be surprised if he doesn't end up with a Make America Great Again hat on. So I got an early copy and I read it this weekend and it is absolutely terrific and I won't give away the ending either. Can folks pre-order it now? It's on Amazon now and they're, they're welcome to, to go and pre-order it. Uh, and you know, if, if Amazon delivery doesn't work, um, if you live in any zip code near mine, I'll hand deliver a copy. <laughs> David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. That was David Ignatius. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.